All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7 is where we're at uh, today as we travel through our series through the book of Revelation. Uh, it is, it's been an awesome, awesome time. Um, I feel like I've got about you know, 100 pounds worth of material to put into a 25-pound sack. So it's going to feel full today, uh, and I'm going to be moving pretty quickly, but it's going to be an awesome time. Revelation chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, there's a, probably one in the pew in front of you. You can grab that one. Or if you have a smartphone or tablet and the YouVersion Bible app, you can open the app and go to the events, and you can follow along there as well. The uh, scriptures are there. Some of the notes are there for you as well. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption, and it's my honor to serve you in the scriptures. I love opening the Bible and being able to study it together and look forward to what God has for us uh, every single time we do. Uh, my, my wife, uh, Micah, and I, uh, if we're ever near a Disney park, this is going to shock you, we're probably going to be at it. And if we're not at the, you know, in the park riding rides, then we're at least going to go to, there's like a, um, I don't know, like a small uh, shopping area with restaurants and things. We're probably going to be at that thing around one of the Disney parks. Well, we were doing that at, uh, we couldn't go into the park, but we were in California a couple years ago. And as you're walking through what's called downtown Disney, uh, they have some different things happening there. And one of the things is they have an artist that sits there and they draw like kind of portraits, except they draw caricatures, right? So they take you and then they, you're like, all right, pick a body. And so, you know, you pick somebody and they draw your face on this body or whatever. But what they do is they make your head really, really big. Um, and um, I don't know if you've noticed, but I already have a big forehead. Some people have said I have a five head. And so, thanks for that pity laugh. Anyway, I thought it was funny. Anyway, so they draw this and it's like massively huge. It's this overblown giant, you know, thing that's going on the, the front of my, my head there. And it's just a crazy thing. They, but what they do is they take features that you have and they exaggerate them. And that's how you get a caricature. And, and the thing is, is that that doesn't just happen with drawings. It also happens with people and their ideas of God. People tend to have an image of God in their minds that's not really a biblical idea. They draw sort of a caricature, a caricature of God in their mind, and then they think that's who he is. And, and really what it comes from is it, it typically comes from things that are actually true about God that are just overblown. They're just over-exaggerated. Uh, and uh, th there's typically two attributes of God that tend to get overblown or over-exaggerated. The first one is that God is kind. God is kind. That, that, that is, you can find that all over the Bible, the kindness of God is all over the scriptures. But when we overblow that, then the caricature of God is that he's like a sweet old grandpa that has really rotten grandkids, and he just winks at their sin and says, it's all right. You know, like everybody else knows, bro, you should spank those. No, you don't say it's okay to those kids. And, uh, you know, he's like, it's okay. And, you know, that's, that's the idea of God that they have. It's all dogs go to heaven. Everybody is just, well, it's one big happy family. People say this phrase, we're all children of God. That's not biblical. The, the Bible says that you have to be adopted into God's family. That's how you become part of his family. And the adoption is through the blood of Jesus. And so there's this caricature of God that he's just this, you know, fluffy teddy bear. But the other caricature of God swings the pendulum the other way. And the, the, the biblical principle is that God is just. Isn't that true? God is just. You find his justice all throughout scripture. But when we overblow that and we create a caricature, now we have a frowny face, mean God with a giant hammer waiting for you to step out of line. And the moment you do, it's coming crashing down. 
People say things like, you know, well, I can't go to church because lightning will strike. You know, my mom had a boyfriend that said that at one point. And it's just like this overblown idea about what people think God is like. And the thing is, is that both of these are true. God is kind and God is just. But the, the problem comes when we try to overemphasize one attribute over another and it causes us to think of God as someone and something that he's not. And that's, that's one of the, the big things that we're going to look at today is these two seemingly opposing attributes of God that actually make up who he is through Revelation 7. It's this, that here's our big idea, that God is good and right when he judges sin and saves sinners. That that's who God is. It's right, it's good, it's appropriate when he brings judgment and when he brings salvation. Those are both true of the Lord. So we're going to read Revelation 7. It's uh, 17 verses. We're going to read the whole chapter together, and then we'll go back through and break it down. All right? So Revelation 7.1 says this. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of God, and he carried, uh, and he cried with a loud voice, the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the, the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, uh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and, uh, and, and they fell on their faces, before the throne and worship saying, worship God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger uh, any more or thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for unveiling yourself through your scriptures. And we pray that as you show us who you are in your word, that we would, uh, we would draw near to you and we would learn of you. We would know more about you, that we would uh, enter into a deeper relationship with you as a result. And so, God, we pray that you'd have your way among us today and you'd help us to grow in our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. All right, so the, as we look at this, we're going to break down this section, Revelation 7, into two parts today. Uh, the first part, verses 1 through 8, the sealed servants, and then the second part, 9 through 17, the saved saints. Now, the Bible has many paradoxes within it. A paradox is something, it's two things that seem to be opposing, but they actually go together, and they work together. And, the, and biblical paradoxes, they work together in, in the mind and in the plan of God. Now, it's simpler for us to stand, understand these things as either or. You know, it's either this or it's that. And, and that's the way we try to put, categorize these things. But biblically, the way to view them is both and. They're both true simultaneously, even if we can't fully grasp them. And we need God's wisdom to understand them correctly. Now, one paradox that we, t- we talked about introduced today is the idea of the justice and the mercy of God. It's easier to understand God as either just or as merciful, but he is actually both. And that's the only biblically correct way to understand him. And this paradox is most clearly and blatantly displayed at the cross of Jesus. At the cross of Christ is where we see the justice and the mercy of God meeting. That that the cross is where the goodness and the rightness of God's wrath against sin is poured out on Jesus. That's why it's so brutal. That's why it's so bloody. That's why it's so torturous. Because sin is that bad. God can't just wink at it and say, no big deal. It's a big deal. And so we see God's wrath poured out at the cross. But we also see God's goodness in his mercy and his grace poured out at the cross because it's from there that he extends forgiveness. What an amazing thing that God is able to do into marrying these things together. A.W. Tozer says it like this, judgment is God's justice uh, confronting moral inequity, whereas mercy is God's goodness confronting human guilt and suffering. That God confronts our sinfulness with his judgment and his grace. And if we are willing to receive it, his judgment can go on Jesus and we can just be recipients of his grace. That's the amazing thing about about God. At the cross, Jesus satisfies the righteous requirement of God's justice while simultaneously extending mercy to guilty sinners. So let's look at this first piece together. This is kind of the the big idea of what's happening within this chapter. It may not be clear right away, but I think you'll see it as we travel through it. The sealed servants in verses 1 through 8. Look back at verse 1. It says this, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, after these things is how chapter 7 begins. And after what things? Well, chapter 6, right? That's, that's what it means. So everything in chapter 6 revolves around the events associated with the scroll that we saw in chapter 5. So as we, we started traveling through these chapters, chapter 5, God the Father is holding a scroll on his throne, and then through that we see that the Lamb, Jesus, takes the scroll. In chapter 6, he begins to open seven seals that seal this scroll shut, and as he does, the judgment of God begins to fall upon the earth. But in chapter 7, what we see is that there's a pause before the final seal. When you get to chapter, the end of chapter 6, there's only six seals opened, but there are seven on the, on the scroll. And so before the final one is opened, there's a pause in heaven. We, we take our eyes off of the things that are happening on earth, and we go back to the heavenly scene. We go back to the throne room of God to see what's taking place there in this, uh, this, this time. Now, in this, um, what we see is that uh, 
in this chapter, this pause is centered around two groups that are described as the recipients of God's mercy in the middle of God's judgment. See, God's judgment is falling on the earth in chapter 6. And then we see these two groups that are recipients of God's mercy. Now, we saw there in verse 7 that there's this idea of the four corners of the earth. And you're like, I knew there were flat earthers, right? And so they're like, maybe you're here and we can talk later if you want to argue about weird stuff. But anyway, this doesn't mean that they believe or that God thinks that the earth is flat and it's literally got four corners. Some people actually take this verse and they go, look, the Bible is just a fairy tale book. And they think it's like those gotcha kind of questions. It's like, that's, that's silly. Let me ask you this. Did you, did you, uh, um, when's the last time that you said, oh man, that's a, a beautiful rotation of the earth as the sun uh, stays still and we move around it? No, you said sunset. That's what you said. The sun never sets. It never actually sets. That's an unscientific term to say the sunrise and the sunset because it doesn't move. We move around it. It doesn't move around us. And so every time we refer to things like that, we are using unscientific terms, but we use them. Why? Because everybody knows what we're talking about. We don't have to say a bunch of ridiculous words. So the four corners of the earth doesn't mean the earth's flat and there's literally four corners. What it means is everywhere, right? It's a compass. There are four directions. That's what's taking place here. So that's imagery and it's brilliant imagery to use something so simple of a terminology that we all immediately get and understand. That it's just, it's everywhere across the entire world. And so what are they doing? Well, they are, uh, they are holding back the wind. These four angels are holding back the wind. Now, wind is something in the Old Testament that the Old Testament prophets would use as a, uh, a way to describe a destructive force as a tool of God's judgment. Hosea 13, 15 says it like this. Ephraim was, uh, was the most fruitful of all his brothers, but the east wind, a blast from the Lord, will arise in the desert. All their, uh, all their uh, flowing springs will run dry, and their wells will disappear. Every precious thing that they own will be plundered and carried away. You see there in Hosea, the idea of the wind is associated with God's activity in bringing judgment. So that's the concept of the wind there. So essentially what we have here in verse 1 is that God's judgment is being held back. That the destructive force of God's judgment is being held back momentarily. And notice where it's directed, verse 1, that it should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. If you look back in chapter 6, we haven't seen God's judgment there yet, but if you look ahead to chapter 8, you'll see that it is there. That's where the judgment of God is going to be in chapter 8. So we'll see some more of that stuff happening in chapter 8. When verse 2 and 3, it says this, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God, on their foreheads. So another angel announces the purpose of this pause. Why are we having this pause? Well, it's to seal a specific group. And this seal has three primary purposes. The, the first purpose of the seal is for identification. Uh, it's it's a, a unique marker, kind of the way that you would think of uh, any sort of uh, leader or landowner in this in, in this era, you know, in ancient history, they would have some sort of signet or whatever that they would press into wax or whatever, and it would be unique to them, and it would signify an identifier of them. Or here's a modern idea of it. You ever seen cattle with funny marks on their butts? It's a brand, and it's unique, and it's specific to that ranch. And so that's how they know this, this is an identifier, that this is uh, part of, uh, of our stuff. But not only identification, but also 
This seal is specifically connected to preservation. If you want to write this down, write down uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. We'll see the, this group of 144,000 again in chapter 14. Uh, and I'm going to make a couple of references to chapter 14, but if you want to see more, then you can see that. In chapter 14, verse 1, what we see is that all, I cannot emphasize that enough, all of the 144,000 from here are seen with Jesus when he's on Mount Zion. Okay, they are all preserved through the tribulation. They go through the tribulation, but they're all preserved through. So the first reason for the seal is identification. The second reason for the seal is preservation. And the third reason for the seal is destination. That, that essentially what God is saying, just like branding cattle, not only is it an identifier, but it's also saying those are mine. And so God is saying these are my people. They are identified with him. Their destiny is in eternity. Warren Wiersbe says this, in scripture, a seal indicates ownership and protection. Today, God's people are sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. This is God's guarantee that we are saved and safe and that he will one day take us to heaven. You see, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit today and this group is sealed by God's supernatural power then as well. Um, and also, if you look in chapter 14, verse 1, you'll see that the seal is probably actually the name of God because it says that they have the name of God written on their foreheads in 14.1. So it's probably that as well. Now, this group is described in verse 3 as the servants of God. Do you see that there in verse 3? That they are the servants of God. That he has something for them to do. And we're going to look more about that a little bit later on. Verse 4 uh, says this. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then I won't read 5 through 8 again because you got the point, right? And that's the point of writing it the way that it is. This tribe, 12,000 were sealed. Tribe, 12,000. Tribe, 12,000. Over and over and over again, we see that, that happening uh, in uh, verses 5 through 8. So we see that those who are sealed, uh, servants, um, are uh, those who are the sealed servants have uh, has been a who they are has been a big debate, and there's two possible interpretations among most Christian scholars as to who are these 144,000. Uh, there's one camp that would say these are representative of another people. And there's another camp that says this is a literal, that these are, are, are a literal people. Now, there's also, we'll, we'll touch on that just a little bit in a minute, but there are also some non-Christian cults who have their ideas about who this is too. One example is the Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim that they're the 144,000, and I don't have time to go into all of their, their views, um, but basically their, their belief system is, uh, it's based on the premise of shoving their viewpoint into the Bible, not what the Bible says. You, you can't get what they say out of the Bible. It just, it's just not there. Uh, and so if you want to talk about that more, I'd be happy to talk more about that with you. But here's the thing. We hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible unless allegory uh, or representation are expressly stated or implied. Like when Jesus said, I'm the bread of heaven, did he mean that he was fluffy and squishy and tasted good? I don't think so. I don't think he, said, I don't think he meant he was literal bread, right? I think he was, he was implying something else. Okay, so when the Bible, it, it, it either says expressly or implies something else is happening, that's where we will take it as an allegory. But unless that's there, we're going to look at it as a literal idea. So, 
So we're actually given six specific descriptors in this section, in 7, 4 through 8, and in 14, 1 through 5, about who this group is. There are six specific things that are said about this group. And if we just look at the, the descriptors, I think it's very clear who this is. All right, number one, we see in verse 4 that this is Israel, right? See that there? It says, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Very clearly stated there, all right? So this is, this is where some people say, well, some, maybe there's a representation here or whatever. Okay, whatever. Now, in case you missed that we're of the tribes of Israel, then we have of the tribe of, and they're listed over and over and over again. So pretty clear going on there, all right? Verses five through eight. Now, also we see in 14.1, I said this before, that they are preserved through the tribulation. Now, now that's a, a big thing. It happens with them. We also see in chapter 14, verse 4, that they are all celibate. All 144,000 are celibate. Celibate. We see in 14, 4, that they are the first fruits of an increase. We'll talk about that in a second. And then we also see in chapter 14, verse 5, that they are filled with integrity and faithfulness. Now, when you take this list of six things, there are only two of the six that could possibly be associated with the church. If the church was to be a representation here, like this isn't, this is, you know, some sort of allegory saying this is the church, only two of the six could possibly be associated with the church, and at that, only kind of, right? The most of the church is not celibate. You know how I know? Y'all got kids, right? Like, I know how it works. Maybe some people don't. I know. I figured it out. I have four. It took me a while, but I figured it out, right? Like, there's just, I just know, like, that's just how it goes, right? So all of us aren't celibate. That doesn't fit. Also, the idea of, in chapter uh, 14, verse 5, the idea of integrity and faithfulness, all of the church isn't filled with integrity and faithfulness, right? We have problems and lapses of faith and all those kinds of things. So, so even the two that sort of connect, they don't really connect. So let me tell you about, about this. Basically, let me cut to the chase and I'll tell you why. This is actually Israel. These are actual Jews that are being talk, talked about here. There's 144,000 actual Jewish people that are being spoken of here, and it cannot be the church. And I'll tell you why. I'll go through each one, one by one. Number one, the church is never referred to as the children of Israel. Not once in all the Bible is the church ever referred to as the children of Israel. The church is described as God taking Jews and Gentiles and putting them together in a new thing. But it's not the children of Israel. That's never the church, okay? Secondly, um, the church um, is never described by the tribes. You never see the church being described. This tribe is the church. Uh, it, never. That's just not the way the church is ever described. We also see that all 144,000 survive the tribulation. Well, I've got two problems with that. In chapter 4, verse 1, we see the church is raptured. So they're not there. But also, last week in chapter 6, we saw that there were a bunch of martyrs in heaven under the, um, uh, the uh, altar who had been slain. And so, is it some of the church, not some of the church? That's a big problem. Okay, so if, if they all make it through, then these didn't make it through, then what is that? All right, so there's an issue there. All Christians are not celebrate. We talked about that. Also, the idea of first fruits in chapter uh, 14, verse 4, the, here's, the, here's the idea of first fruits. First fruits is this it's an initial reaping of your field or whatever that's dedicated to God in hope of a greater future reaping. 
So it's, it's an act of faith. What you would do is, you, let's say you had a field and that was your, your primary business. And so you go and the very first time you go through your field for your reaping, you take that and you dedicate the whole thing to God. And you say, God, this is the first fruits, all to you. Okay? And you do that in faith saying, God, it's, it's better for me to give you all of this and hope you'll provide more than it is for me to keep it and try to scrounge up what I can. So the first fruits is the idea of not only some that's taken, but it's in hope of more that's taken. Here's the thing. We are the fruit of the cross of Christ. The church cannot be an expected other kind of a thing. We already are the fruits. So the first fruits is these 144,000 Jews, which is representative of the entire nation coming to the Lord. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single Jew will be a follower of Jesus. What it means is that nationally, they will all recognize the Lord and they will all move forward together. There might be stragglers here and there that deny the Lord, but by and large as a nation, they will all turn to the Lord. You can read about that in Romans chapter 11. So they're the first fruits, but they're also the first fruits of the saints that will be saved in the tribulation. We'll talk about that here in just, just a minute, okay? So this can't be the church there uh, for that. Also, not all Christians have integrity and faithfulness. Basically, the church fails on all six points, all six descriptors. This literally cannot be the church. It's, there's no possible way. It can only be the, uh, the, the nation of Israel. Now, in this list, I'm going to point out a couple of nerd things before I move on. Uh, in this list, there are a couple of interesting things taking place here. If you notice, when you read through the names that are listed here of the tribes, if you're familiar with the tribes of Israel, you'll notice that one is missing. His name's Dan. Uh, Dan is gone. And, uh, you know, what, what's going on with Dan? What's happening with, with the tribe of Dan? Uh, there's a number of, of things that people say and guesses why we... Here, here's the thing. We don't know why. Here's a possibility. One possibility is that they were connected to constantly recurring idolatry. And you can read about that in Judges chapter 18. And in Judges 18.30, Dan was associated with this infamous idolatry that was perpetually besetting Israel. And so this might be one of those things that's sort of a, a consequence of that. Not that they weren't a part of the, the saved, but that they just don't get the honorable mention uh, in that way. Also, uh, you'll notice that there's a weird name in there in verse 8, Joseph. Anybody ever remember e reading the tribe of Joseph in the Old Testament? If you say yes, you're a liar. There isn't one, right? There, no, there's no tribe of Joseph. Joseph was uh, actually um, represented by his two sons. So his dad, Jacob, took two of his sons and said, these now are my sons, and he claimed them as his own, and that's where two of the tribes came from. One of them was Manasseh, which we saw in verse 6, but the other son is Ephraim, and he is sort of vaguely named by naming Joseph. By default, we know Manasseh is named, and so Joseph is a sort of backhanded way of referencing Ephraim. That, Ephraim that's what it, that's talking about. And this possibly as well, is because Ephraim also had lots of issues with constantly recurring idolatry. You can read about that in Hosea 4. All right, so some try to point out this irregular uh, you know, listing as a big problem and say, oh, there's a big issue with the Bible and you can't, you know, whatever, trust it or whatnot, and, or you know, what's going on with this list, and it can't be Israel, and so that's why they point to it. But let me say this. When you read through the Old Testament, you will find at least... 20 different ways 
that the nation of Israel, the tribes are listed. Different orders, different names. Sometimes Dan's in there, sometimes Dan's not in there. It's, it's very irregular throughout the whole Bible. So my question would be, what is the regular listing of uh, the tribes of Israel if that's the way that you want to go at it? It just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. David Guzik says it like this, just because a list is different doesn't mean it's fanciful symbolism. It's proper to regard each one of these lists in the Bible as legitimate and to understand that each specific variation serves a purpose or a meaning to emphasize something, that that's what's going on with these lists. Now, the only biblically faithful way to see the 144,000 is as specifically chosen Jews who recognize Jesus as the Messiah and who are sealed through the great tribulation. Romans 11.1, 11.23, and 11.26 talks about how they are grafted in again, how they are all saved. Okay, so that's, that's what's taking place here. This is the Jews that are sealed through the tribulation. Not only do we have that, but we also have the saved saints in verses 9 through 17. Verse 9 says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Now the scene shifts from earth back to heaven, right? This is on earth, the, the, the 12 tribes. And we go back to heaven and another group is described. And we don't have to wonder who this group is. We don't have to try to put it together because it's literally told to us in verse 14. All right, we'll, we'll hammer on that a little bit more when we get there. But this group in verse 9 is connected to God's throne. We're back to God's throne again. It's like every time John sees a vision of heaven, he goes right to the throne of God again and again and again. That worship is directed to God's throne and power comes from God's throne. That's what's happening there. It's not, a, it's not the special chair. It's the one who sits on the chair, right? It's, it's not that there's, oh, there's a special chair there. It's not the throne that he's enthralled with. It's God's glory and presence that is hap that's taking the, the preeminence in all of this. Now, they are described as, number one, innumerable, an innumerable multitude, they're from every people on the earth. They're wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches. Now here's something that's interesting. As John looks at this huge group, he immediately recognizes diversity. I don't know what you think heaven is like, but you probably thought it was like you, right? Like we have this sort of narrow myopic view of ourselves that everyone's gonna look, everyone's gonna be six feet tall and have red hair. You're like, please, no, it's the, some sort of weird ginger Thing. Like, that's just, no, that's not, that's not what it's going to be like. John immediately recognizes these people are from everywhere, everywhere. So this is interesting. Think about this for a minute, that everyone doesn't look the same in heaven, and people are recognizable in heaven. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, that Jesus is there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah show up, and Peter, James, and John recognize Moses and Elijah. And I'm going to guess it wasn't because they had name tags that said, hello, my name is Moses. Like, they just immediately knew that's Moses, that's Elijah. There's some sort of supernatural understanding that they had when they saw them and were connected to it. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, I suppose he looked at them and could tell they were where they were from. There is individuality in heaven. Depend on it. Every seed will have its own body. And they, there will sit down in heaven not three unknown patriarchs, but Abraham, you'll know him. Isaac, you will know him. And Jacob, you will know him. There will be in heaven not a company of persons all struck off alike so that you cannot tell who is who, but they will be out of every nation every, and kindred and people and tongue. 
that, that as you look forward to heaven, your heavenly body will be perfected and fitted for eternity. And uh, in God's redemptive creativity, he's going to use your present body to make it up. He's going to use your parts now to make that heavenly body then. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Not, we, not only do we see that they're all diverse, but they also wear white robes. This speaks of their salvation, that they are given holiness. They're given purity. That's the idea of white robes. And they also have palm branches. Now, palm branches are a symbol of triumph and victory. So what this is telling us is that they had a hard time. It wasn't easy for them to get to where they're at. And they've, they've been victorious. That's what that palm branch is all about. They've, they've gotten their salvation, but it's, it's been difficult. Now, what is this multitude doing, verse 10? It says, they're crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This multitude is worshiping God. And, and notice that Jesus is their equal with the Father. Think about it like this. If you were to put any other name there, you know, worshiping he who sits on the throne and, you know, Mother Teresa. Like, it just doesn't work. Or Cody, right? Like, that really doesn't work, right? You guys get that idea that it just doesn't fit that anybody else should be named there. But when the Lamb, when Jesus is named, it fits. Why? Not because he's like God, but because he is God. He's of the same essence as God. Jesus is being exalted as deity. As God's judgment falls on the earth, there is continuing worship service going on in heaven. What an incredible idea. That God is just and right in his judgment. And the worship is not being forced by God, but it's responsive. That they're seeing how great and glorious he is, and, and they're responding to his greatness. Psalm 51.4 says this, Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, you will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. That God's judgment against sin is right. It is the way that it should go. It's appropriate. But, but think, of it, think of it like this. I'll use Marvel movies as an example. I don't know if you like Marvel movies. We, we love them. I, I, well, I used to love them. They're getting weird. But anyway... Um, we'll see. We'll see, how, see where this goes. But, uh, you know, I'll use three examples from Marvel movies. God is not like the Hulk in his judgment. He is not unhinged and aimless, right? He just kind of smashes whatever's around. That's not God's judgment. He didn't just go into a blind rage and just start smashing stuff. That's not God's judgment. God's judgment is also not like Thanos, where he's insane and random. He's like, I'm just going to, I'm just, I have a crazy idea. Let's just kill everybody, right? That's just, that's not God. That's not the way that his judgment is. He's also not Captain America, where he's sincere but imperfect. He just actually can't do what he's trying to do, or he's, he sincerely wants to do what's right. That's not who God is. God is, his judgment is exact. His judgment is measured. His judgment is purposeful. His judgment is right. His judgment is good. It's appropriate. And so he's being worshiped in the middle of the judgment. Not as an insane lunatic, but as the righteous God. Verse 11 says this, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
As has been true since chapter 4, when one group breaks out into worship, another group just can't help but join in. And so this multitude is worshiping God, and then you see the, the, the elders, and, you know, which we saw in chapter 4. We see the four living creatures that we saw in chapter 4, and we see uh, the angels all joining in to this worship. That true worship is contagious. It's powerful. There's a supernatural. Have you felt that? This supernatural invitation drawing you in that when the saints of God are gathered together and they're crying out to the Lord and they're singing his praise, there's something that happens in you that says, I've got to add my voice. I, I can't be silent. I can't just sit here and, and do nothing. I have, to, I have to add my voice to this chorus of glory going before the Lord because that's what true worship does. It draws you and me in. And their worship is directed at God's character. Do you see that there in verse 12? It's who he is. Because who he is is what results in verse 10, salvation. You see, the attributes of God are what produce the actions of God. That he's not being worshipped because of the stuff necessarily that he does. He's being worshipped because of the character that he holds and who he is. I'll take one example out of this list. There's seven things listed in verse 12 and point one to you and see the connection between what it is and salvation. One of them, wisdom. See that there in the list, verse 12? Wisdom. You see, only God has the wisdom to think of and be able to use the torturous death of one to bring the eternal life of many. That's a crazy plan. That's a wild imagination that God has. That's amazing that God could do such a thing. That, that takes insane amounts of wisdom. And that's what God has. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. It might look like foolishness because you can't understand it, but it's just because God is that much wiser than you are. This section goes on to say that God's foolishness is actually greater than our greatest wisdom. That doesn't mean that God has foolishness. It's just a euphemism to say, hey, if God could be foolish, it's even way better than our greatest plans. That's how big God is, and that's why sometimes the way he does things doesn't make sense to us. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. Basically, I got no idea. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes uh, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So God wants this specific group, this multitude in chapter 9, to be identified. And, and it's almost like, wow, we lost some power there. Uh, it's almost like, we got issues going on. It, it's just going to blink. and it's, it's just entertaining for you. In case you're falling asleep because it's hot, there's a light show. That's the extent of the light show we have. All right, so... It's almost like God, it's almost like John didn't, didn't think of the question. Like, I wonder who those people are. And it's like he had to be provoked to ask the question. So one of the elders comes and says, hey, John, who is that? And he's like, you tell me. That's basically what's going on here. And so God really wants them to be identified. And, and, and here's, what, here's who they are not. They're not the angels, because we see the angels listed in verse 11. They're not the elders. We see them listed in verse 11. They're not the four living creatures. We see them listed in verse 11. And they are not the 144,000 that we saw earlier. 
This is a completely separate group. This is a different group that we are talking about. Now, if you remember, the elders from our study in chapter 4, those are representative of the church. So the elders, there's 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. They are representative of the church. That's us today. Those who are believers in Christ today, who have our future hope of heaven, that Jesus has paid our price and paid our way to eternity and salvation in heaven, that we are represented in those elders. So it's not the church. That's not what this multitude is. This is a different group. See, these are saints who get saved through the tribulation. See that there in verse 14? It says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They get saved during the great tribulation. Here's what's crazy. Even while God's wrath and judgment are falling, his grace and mercy are still present to save. And how many? A multitude so big you can't number them. What amazing thing that God is doing. In the middle of his judgment, in the middle of his wrath, as the people who have rebelliously rejected God and his wrath falls, he still extends grace. He still says, you can turn and be saved, even as the judgment is falling. And God is so good that thousands of people are getting saved. What a crazy idea. What an amazing, amazing concept. Now, here's the thing. These saved tribulation saints who are not the church and are not the 144,000 and not angels and not, you know, not that, they're connected contextually to the 144,000. You notice where verse 9 comes after? Verse 8. That's where it comes out. Yeah, you're like, wow, thanks. I appreciate it. I'm glad I came to church today. Right? Verse 9 comes after verse 8. They're connected contextually together. That, that some would say, and it tends to be my belief, that uh, the, it's likely that the salvation of this multitude is because of the work of the 144,000. Remember, they had a job to do, verse 3. That they were the servants of the Lord. That God had commissioned them to something. And, and here's, here's the thought. Here's basically the idea. Imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls running all over the world preaching the gospel. How many people do you think are going to get saved? A lot. A lot of people. They, they have no constraints with marriage because they're celibate. They're just going to dedicate their lives for this next season to just ministry. And that's all they're going to do. And people, massive amounts of people get saved. How do they get saved? Well... Jesus' blood, verse 14, is how. You see that there in verse 14? They've, uh, they, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That Jesus' blood is the how. His, his, here's the thing. Blood is a terrible detergent, but it's great at making permanent stains. You ever gotten blood on something? You're like, I'm never getting that out, right? That's just the way that that's going. But they've washed their robes white, which is a weird, that's a weird paradox, isn't it? You ever wash clothes in blood? I hope not. That's weird. If you did, let's talk after service. But if that ever has happened, then you know that it's, it's not going gonna, it's not gonna to make the clothes white. It's going to make the clothes a lot of things, but white is not one of them. It, it is a terrible, it's terrible for cleaning clothes, but it's the only thing in the universe that can clean souls. Their white robes have nothing to do with their white robes. It has everything to do with their souls being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And it's this representation of their salvation that Jesus' blood alone can produce the holiness and purity that they need. And it's very likely, because of how terrible the tribulation is, that this multitude, the way they got to heaven, was through martyrdom. That's probably the way that they died. 
They probably gave their lives to Jesus in the tribulation. We'll see as we, we go forward, continuing on through Revelation. They end up having to give their lives for their salvation. But here's the thing. They didn't get their salvation through their martyrdom. That didn't get it for them. That didn't earn it for them. Their, their robes were white because of not their sacrifice, but because of Jesus' sacrifice. That's the amazing thing. David Guzik says this, the greatest sacrifice you could ever make is insufficient to save you. Do you see how foolish it is and perhaps offensive to God for people to think that church attendance will save them? Friends, laying down your life for God won't save you. Only the work of Jesus can. Yes, should we go to church? Yes, there's, a, there's an appropriate place for that, but it's not going to save you. Membership at a church isn't going to save you. Uh, adopting rescue dogs isn't going to save you. You know, giving money to some, some nonprofit organization, it's not going to save you. Only the blood of Jesus can save you. Verse 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. You see, these tribulation saints have the presence of God, and they have purpose in God. You see that? In verse 15, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night. That, that there in heaven, uh, God gives his presence and purpose. Heaven is what it is because God is there. It's, heaven isn't heaven because that's where streets of gold are at. It's not because there's angels. It's not because there's giant pearly gates. It's not because there's Peter telling jokes, letting people in. That's not what makes heaven what it is. Heaven is what it is because God is there. His presence is what makes heaven what it is. I can live in any house. But when I bring my wife and my kids and we live, we make that a home. Any house can be a home for us. But, uh, but not every, every home is a house. Whatever. I don't know if I said that the right way. <laughs> we could live in a tent, right? That could be our home. It would suck, but we could do it. <laughs> right? Okay. John Walverud says it like this. Heaven is... Uh, heaven is not only a place of rest from earthly toil, but a place of privileged service. See, Genesis chapter 3, in the fall of man, when sin entered the world, it corrupted everything, including work. But that doesn't mean that work is bad. You see, heaven is not a perpetual vacation. If that's what you think heaven's like, you're like, I can't wait to become a fat baby playing a harp on a cloud someday. That's just weird. Why would you want to do that? But it's not a perpetual vacation. You're not just going to go and do nothing. God has work for you eternally. The difference is not, uh, not the, um, uh, the difference is what we're designed to be active and that it's not corrupted by the fall. That, that you, it's not something that you toil over, you dread, and you try to hit snooze to avoid going. That, that it's, it's something that we, in, we will want to do and, and be excited to participate in. Heaven is going to be a lot of things, but boring is not one of them. That's not what heaven's going to be like. All right, verse 16 says this, Then they shall, uh, they shall neither uh, hunger anymore or thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor heat... Uh, um, I lost my place. Nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, Jesus here is shown as the lamb who is the shepherd. Uh, here's another paradox. He's both. He's the lamb and the shepherd. He has the power and the authority of the shepherd with the humility and the gentleness 
of the Lamb. And what does he do? He protects his people from every affliction. That's what's listed in verse 16. All the different things that could be afflictions, he protects his people. And then verse 17, he provides their every need. That's what the shepherd, the lamb shepherd does for us, his people. And see, the thing is that Jesus knows the depths of our sorrows. He knows the depths of our pains. That's why it says that he'll wipe away every tear. It says, verse 17, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them into fountains of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, he, he intimately knows the depths of our sorrows and our pains. He knows our hardships. And he's also the source of our comfort, our wholeness, and our security. Hebrews 4, 14 through 15 says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That Jesus can, he can identify with us even in our pain and our hardship and that gives him a unique ability to wipe away those tears. You see, even in the middle of God's judgment against sin, he still wants to save sinners. He, his justice is met with his grace. He, and, and he is good and right to do both. And you and I find ourselves on one side or the other of God's justice or his grace. We are destined to one or the other based on whether we view ourselves in reality or we view ourselves in delusion. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Mark chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, Jesus, uh, it says this, but when the, religious, uh, when the teachers of the religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they asked his disciples, uh, why does he eat with such scum? Then Jesus heard this. When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come, call, I have come to call not those who, are, who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. You see, when you see the sickness of your own heart, then you see that God is right to judge and amazing in his grace. The question is, will you trust him today? Will you give him your heart? Will you follow him with all that you are? I pray that that is your heart and desire. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the opportunity to open it, to look at it, to study it. We pray that you'd be glorified among us and that Jesus, your name would be exalted. Lord, we thank you that you are right to judge and that you are right to save. And God, I pray that you would help us to look to you as our Savior, as our Lord, as our God, and that we would experience closeness of relationship with you. We look forward uh, to the time when we get with you in heaven, and we pray that you'd help us to be fruitful on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.